Hi, my name is Nicholas Chin, and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society's podcast. With me today is Evan Easton Calabria. She is a researcher at the Refugee Study Centre here in Oxford, and is also working on a PhD in international development. Thank you very much for joining us, Evan. Um, what are the most significant challenges you would say of, that face refugees today? Well, first, I would say it's restrictions to the freedom of movement. So we can think about that in different terms, that refugees who are needing to leave the countries, um, their countries of origin, so Syria, for example, are facing extreme challenges in getting to Europe and their mobility is being restricted. But then at the same time, when we think about the majority of refugees who are living in the global south, um, they're often encamped. So they're stuck in uh, refugee camps where they don't have freedom of movement. They can't go to the next nearest city and find a job or even be re- reunited with their families. So you talk about the restrictions of freedom of movement then. How does that challenge vary depending on which country a refugee is coming from and which country they are going towards? It, well, it definitely varies a lot. So depending on their host countries' government rules that, for example, a lot of my work is in Uganda, which is very generous to refugees. So refugees do have the right to work. They have the right to freedom of movement. So um, some of the refugees I work with from the Democratic Republic of Congo have no issue with, in in theory at least, in working and being able to move around. Um, But of course, when someone is very poor in a country that's very poor, these larger issues of infrastructure become an issue or finding a job. Um, So most people are in the informal sector. But at the same time, if we're thinking of people who do want to travel to Europe, well, if they don't come from a nationality that um, the German government's going to readily grant a visa to, then they do have to take an arduous journey across the Mediterranean, for example. Um, You're saying there that although in theory they have a complete right to get a job, um, it's still difficult for them. Would you say it's more difficult for a refugee coming into Uganda than, uh, than for a Ugandan person who's living in poverty to find a job? That is a very good question. I think I would say yes, but I would say it, it really depends. But also, um, this is one of the issues that you know, 86% of refugees live in um, the, the global south. They're staying in host countries that are often very impoverished. So these are countries where their own citizens are struggling to get access to basic health care, to education, um, to a job market. And so refugees often face many of the same issues. And if we're talking about refugees beyond refugee camps. So most of my work is with refugees in urban settings. So Kampala, Uganda, the capital of Uganda. Um, and they basically join the ranks of the urban poor facing, therefore, many of the same issues as poor Ugandans. Um, In addition to this, do you think that they face discrimination in um, the country that they generally settle in? Is that a problem? I think discrimination of different forms. So Uganda as, um, I guess, it's kind of a model country, basically. So I would say that the discrimination from the government is a lot less than um, for refugees in Kenya, for example. So some of the refugees I work with are Somali, and those living in Nairobi face extreme discrimination that actually some of their biggest challenges are with the police. So those kind of officials that we think we can count on, well, refugees often hide from them or they have to bribe them. So whereas refugees in Uganda might say, no, it's not a problem to meet a police officer. That's very different for refugees in Kenya. Um, And then at the local level, again, it really depends. So there's, um, I would say, more discrimination encountered in the refugees I work with in Kenya than in Uganda, um, based on kind of a larger anti-immigration rhetoric that we're familiar with here, too. Um, So people can become displaced for a number of reasons. 
Does the kind of experience prior to displacement and reason for displacement affect the experience after they've been displaced? Yeah, definitely. So if we're thinking of what people bring with them, that, I mean, sometimes people have assets, right? So sometimes they do still have bank accounts that they can draw money from. And research shows that often it's at the beginning when refugees have the most resources, that they do have friends that maybe are allowing them to stay in their in the country that they're in, or they do have assets that they can draw on. But as flight displacement continues, so after flight, um, that money dries up where they can't depend on those social ties in the same way. But at the same time, there are refugees that are coming with other you know, non-material non assets, so they might have the language skills. So refugees who speak English in Uganda, which is a primarily English-speaking country, have a great advantage, and that means they're more likely to access the labor market or to you know, make friends and create social networks. So I'd say it definitely um, depends. And also something that I think definitely isn't talked about in academia very much, but just the role of personality of you know people who who are displaced, but people who choose to leave, that there is some element of making decisions along the way. Um, these are people that gain experience as they go, but also you know, come with particular attitudes and experiences that shape their lives. And um, one example is a refugee in the Nikivale refugee settlement where I was last month, who talked about being a health worker and he had been a kind of a counselor in Rwanda. And so when he came to this refugee settlement in Uganda, he recognized that he was already in a pretty amazing situation of knowing how to help people, that he felt like he was able to learn of people's needs and respond, respond because he had that background that other people might not have at all. Um, generally, do refugees who have directly experienced conflict have a harder time resettling than those who have not? Ooh, I think that's hard to generalize, but it's a really good question. And there's definitely important work being done on, on the psychosocial elements of you know how do we help people integrate into a new country or settle and um, or after resettlement so after going to a western country for example are there the programs necessary and I think there's often a lot of unacknowledged trauma that isn't um, there's not the programs available to really deal with that in the way that people might need. Um, how has the kind of overall number of displaced people changed over time? So my work goes back to the 1920s and looking at what we call the inception of the international refugee regime. So these different actors that you know come together to assist refugees. And in the interwar years, so between World War I and World War II, there were about 10 million refugees in Europe. So there was a much smaller amount. Um, but then after World War II, there were over 50 million. So the international community had to work together a lot to um, resettle refugees and help repatriate refugees, so to help them go back. Um, so then if we look over the last 70 years, we're definitely at the all-time high of forcibly displaced people. So we have 65.6 .6 million refugees, um, or excuse me, displaced people, and about 20 million refugees. So high numbers, but really compared to what Europe was facing after World War II, not insurmountable numbers of people no. to assist. Um, how does kind of the scale of displacement of displacement affect attitudes towards displaced people? Yeah, I think it has a really big effect and we can think of attitudes as just the rhetoric but also the practices. So um, when there's more people to assist, there's often less money in particular regions. So refugees who just come, who are considered to be coming from a crisis zone, so Syria is probably the most recent example, or the Rohingya refugees, um, often receive a lot of money that there are these funds going to emergencies, 
But the reality is that refugees in general are in exile for over 20 years. So there's a lot of people who've been refugees for a really long time that stop receiving the funding. And one of the you know, really big complaints in a lot of refugee camps in East Africa is that the food rations are decreasing, that you know, the World Food Programs and WFP you know, says, get, get ready because we're not going to be able to give you six kilograms of rice. It's only going to be three next year. And that being a big problem that has very tangible effects. And then in terms of the attitudes, I think that there is this wider spread kind of anti-immigration, maybe anti-refugee in particular sentiment in particular countries. And I think that can really be associated with a fear of numbers. And we saw, I think, with the Brexit referendum, that be really being played on of refugees being perceived as coming in floods and threatening a way of life or, you know, completely overtaking an economic system in ways. The infamous breaking point poster. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so we see that happening in, in, in part due to numbers, and I'm saying part due to politicians' fears about their own, you know, popularity. But also with this change in numbers of refugees, does it, does it directly affect the experience of the refugees and displaced people themselves, you say? Well, I would say to a certain extent, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I can imagine just thinking very sort of viscerally about people who walked across Europe and, you know, if they had been alone, um, probably with their Google Maps on their cell phones, um, but that might have been a really different experience than going with sometimes hundreds of thousands of people and following the routes that other people had set out. So. I guess I wonder, I, I don't know, but if sometimes there can be a feeling of, of solidarity as well as obviously kind of mass um, frustration and pain and um, struggle. Yeah. Uh, currently, what sort of programs exist that help to aid displaced people and refugees kind of um, in the West and more locally to, what, to where they may be displaced from? Yeah, so in Europe and in the United States, there are a lot of different programs that often are more or less national. Um, so that does depend on the welfare system of a country and so on. But my focus is on refugees in East Africa. And um, it again, it just depends on where people are. So for a long time, the norm has been providing assistance in refugee camps. So really helping people, or sometimes forcing people to go to camps where they receive assistance, which is often very basic. Um, and for a while, it's called care and maintenance, really just maintaining people's lives. So giving a particular amount of food, um, maybe schools, kind of some basic trainings. But then in the last 10, 15 years or so, there's been more of a turn towards um, urban refugees. And since 2009, it's been legal for refugees to reside in urban areas. So they don't have to kind of live under the radar in the same way in some countries, again, not in all countries. Uh, so that's meant that aid organizations and development organizations have in some ways a new challenge that they see that refugees are choosing to be in cities, so following this global trend of urbanization. Um, and they have to therefore find the refugees who often are sort of indistinguishable from other people, maybe in informal settlements and slums or just in different parts of a city. 
So in that way, I think assistance organizations have had to really kind of reconfigure some of their work and think about, you know, are we assisting just refugees? So are we trying to find those refugees, give them, you know, help them seek asylum? So go through the formal route in case they haven't done so, get them identity documents. Are we training them for livelihoods? So maybe giving a six month sewing class or English lessons or, you know, getting their children into school. Um, but then there's also an issue of when people in urban areas are right next to their potentially, you've gone to neighbors, for example, who potentially are just as poor, you know, when does the help stop and should it stop that if people are just being given help because they're refugees, is that potentially actually fostering um, discrimination instead of helping hinder it? So there is a more community-based approach in some countries of saying, you know, look, a lot of these people are poor regardless of their nationality. Let's assist them. So again, it varies by context. context. So is it then a lot of the time more important to focus on poverty eradication rather than just simply just helping refugees in cases where they settled in impoverished countries? Yeah, I think that poverty has to be a big part of the discussion. And for the same reason of... You know, potentially thinking about the rhetoric that's you know fostering hatred against refugees, maybe in the West, if we're you know, going global north, global south, and um, Western air quotes. Uh, maybe it's not about poverty, but it's often you know, about the economy and about fears over jobs. So at the same time, when we're thinking of you know impoverished countries that don't have a formal labor labor market where most people are working in the informal sector, often for very little. Um, then, you know, the, their quality of life is really important and the public health, you know, um, availability for all people. So definitely having that be a big part of the picture, I think, is one way to focus on well-being for refugees and for others. Um, when it comes to resettling, I think there's both kind of an economic and psychosocial aspect to success. So how do we measure the success of programs that look to aid refugees? That's a great question. Um, so I can't pretend to answer that question, but I think something that often doesn't happen that is, I find very surprising is really long-term follow-up. So often, you know, organizations that work with refugees in the United States, for example, are you know very focused on helping refugees through their first six months or their first year, for example. And I haven't seen this. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it's not as readily accessible. This um, analysis of what's happening after 10 years, after 20 years, that we have a lot of work about immigrants and integration and so on. So if we're thinking of resettlement and refugees really coming to Western countries, um, but there's not the same level of information that I've found as um, accessible about what's happening after this long period of time, what, what has been successful, what hasn't been, and so on. You also mentioned that as a problem with giving funding, that people only have a focus on the first year or so of a refugee's um, experience after they've been displaced. Um, what do you think can be done to raise more awareness for long-term refugee resettlement? Yeah. So you ask a question that people have been asking for about 100 years, maybe maybe 80 years, because I think people did it better in the interwarriors. But um, it's called the relief development gap. So how do we close this, this gap between relief help, so emergency aid of, you know, giving someone a a tent, for example, giving them food, kind of getting those basic necessities covered, and then the development aspect that after two, three, four, five, twenty years, um, how are they able to really rebuild a life? 
And there's a lot of effort right now, as there has been over decades, um, looking at how do, how do we close that? So I think one of the larger scale, kind of more macro ways of addressing it, I think, actually has to do with national organizations. So, for example, countries like Jordan, where the UN Refugee Agency is working, also have a lot of Jordanian NGOs that are civil society organizations working with refugees that often know exactly what refugees need. They're familiar with the neighborhoods, with the context, with the weather in ways that, you know, an outside aid worker might not be. And they might have very specific ideas of programs that would fit really well um, into the larger Jordanian context. Yet, they can't get funding, that there's not um, that interest, or maybe there's the interest, there's not the reality, of providing funding to national organizations. So these organizations either don't exist, that they're really strapped for funding, um, or that they're getting money from international organizations to do what larger international organizations think is important. So I think that part of this story when we're thinking about really sustainability and long-term support has to do with well, who's sticking around for 20 years. It's, it, it's not, well, sometimes it is the UN Refugee Agency, but oftentimes it's other organizations don't stay for that long because they are moving to the next emergency or their staff is much smaller after a few years. Whereas civil society organizations you know, say, we're the first responders and we're the last responders. That's interesting, because that's also a topic that came up last week when we were talking about aid effectiveness with Masuda Lubana, that um, foreign aid organisations often come in and give a lot of money and in order to establish their own imperative. So do you think it's important to reform how we give aid to refugees to focus on local agencies? Absolutely, yeah. And part of my research looks at refugee-led organizations. So beyond national civil society, what are refugees themselves doing to help each other? And this is a fascinating and very untold part of the story of refugee assistance, that there are organizations in Kampala offering very much the same services as big international organizations, that they're teaching each other English, they're providing livelihoods trainings. And what's important is they're doing it in their own neighborhoods. So they're helping refugees that maybe don't have the money to leave the neighborhoods, that maybe for whatever reason don't want to be registered, that they're scared of going to these big organizations. Um, so often it's the most vulnerable that are getting support from these smaller organizations that refugees are leading and you know these refugees have created these organizations because they know the need and they have ideas for how to solve it and this is um, really happening almost completely under the radar and I think elevating these in some ways just these stories of success can help us learn as a kind of broader international humanitarian community um, but then looking at how do we build off of this in a very tangible way of Maybe, maybe paying the rent of these organizations would be one way to start, for example, or maybe paying one person's salary that, or implementing programs, right? Helping them do their work, but better or with resources. So there's a lot of different ways to increase aid effectiveness. And I think the local level is where we really do need to be starting. We focused a lot on kind of the uh, economic position of refugees and getting jobs and being able to settle in that sense. To what extent is cultural integration important as well? I would say it's, you know, I'm not sure with integration, it's interesting thinking about culture and does that mean kind of a two-way street or, you know, how, how are we defining integration? But I think with cultural 
aspects, maybe coexistence is the way to think of it, of, you know, can people be learning from each other? Can they be respectful of different practices? Um, and one of the refugee organizations I work with in Kampala is directly across the street from a mosque. And so they wake up every morning and, you know, with the people with the call to prayer. And then they say they make jokes about it later in the afternoon with their, to their Muslim neighbors that, you know, there's coexistence happening, even if, you know, these are still Christians living alongside Muslims. But I think there's definitely a role to play with helping people be respectful and not, not criminalizing different practices or seeing them as um, threatening to one's own way of life. So what level of economic assistance can the average refugee actually expect to receive, do you think? Do you mean economic assistance in terms of actual money or just in terms of money put towards them? Um, I suppose both. Yeah, I don't think I can answer either, actually. Um, so, yeah, really interesting question. So again, it, it varies by country, yeah. and I would say it varies by the geopolitical significance of the coast country that refugees are in, of you know, the country that refugees left, of what else is happening in the world. So where can that kind of humanitarian gaze go? And that's highly political um, and you know, has a lot to do with other people's politics, we could say. So for example, Afghans and refugee in excuse me, Afghans in Pakistan during the Cold War received a lot of refugee assistance because the US wanted to defeat communism, that they had a big incentive to help Afghans. And there was a lot of military stuff happening alongside actual assistance. So economic assistance can actually take very different forms. Um, and again, just the length of time of exile that often at the beginning there's more assistance being given. And right now, for example, Uganda is hosting over a million refugees, but there's a, many, many new arrivals, but also thousands of people who've been there for a long time. But still last year, it only had 16% of its um, quota filled in, in terms of the aid it needed because economic assistance was going elsewhere in the world. Do you think the media has a role to play in kind of directing our gaze towards? Because I think if you, if you look at media portrayals of refugees and displaced people, they generally today focus on areas like Syria and places like Uganda get forgotten about. Do you think it's important that they have a broader view? Yeah, definitely. And I think this is one of the challenges of the media, right, is how do we show what's important and important for whom? And so there's a bigger role of the media, I think, to switch. And also in terms of that longer term gaze. So even, for example, this is not a refugee situation, but, you know, hurricanes in the U.S., for example, that happened recently. Has there been very much coverage of people displaced by that? Do we know what's happening to those people? Have they gone back to Florida? Are they still with neighbors? Are they now homeless in another state? That a lot of coverage doesn't return to these emergencies, which I think can foster kind of a feeling of fear of the world being full of perpetual emergencies, but also really isn't giving, you know, shedding light and giving credence to what else is happening and the help that's being given after emergencies as well. With emergencies that perhaps don't get as much international attention, how, um, how important are NGOs and voluntary organizations? In terms of providing assistance? Providing assistance and helping refugees settle and finding places for them to settle. Yeah, I think they're integral to it, that a lot of the work of humanitarian organizations, I would say, goes very much under the radar, that there are long-standing programs that um, are happening in countries people hardly ever think about. So the Central African Republic is one example of a country that's been having conflict and displacement for decades. And, you know, there are humanitarians there, and The Guardian and The New York Times is not covering it very much. So definitely, um, 
idea of the unsung heroes and going beyond humanitarian organizations as well, the neighbors that have taken in people and all the, all the stories we don't hear of assistance. Is there a particular organization that you think um, does a lot of work and always goes under the radar that you might want to bring attention to now? Oh, what a nice question. Um, do you know, I think I would keep it as a, a, kind of the blanket statement of refugee-led organizations, so stay tuned because I'm going to research underway on that, um, that there's just incredible work being done by refugees for refugees. And when we think of you know the role of the media and perceptions of refugees, I think um, elevating the status and broadening the story of how refugees are assisting each other is one way to combat this idea of refugees either as criminals or as victims. And you know, as uh, Somali refugees in, in Nairobi have told me, you know, they think we're all shababs, we think we're terrorists, or, you know, we're, I don't know, from pi pirates, I think that's what they said. And, like, these are our options, and, you know, the media has a lot to do yeah. there in terms of shifting that perception. Um, what policies do you think are most effective right now in helping refugees? Um, I would say policies that... Well, or work that's being done to create policies that are giving refugees basic rights, which sounds um, maybe like a kind of blanket vanilla answer, but I think this is one of the most important things that refugees are living in places where they are living without the freedom of movement. You know, t detention centers for in Europe, for example, are one example of that. Um, so refugees without the right to work, so we're having to work in very exploitative conditions. Um, these basic things that we think of as humans, people should be allowed to to move freely, although obviously given the existence of borders and visas and so on, that's actually a very contentious statement. Um, but the ability to seek work and to kind of create meaningful lives and livelihoods. So some of the basic work, I think, is um, important. And I guess more specifically, there's more and more assistance that's being given in ways that I believe are giving refugees more agency. So cash-based assistance is one example of that, that the World Food Program, you know, used to always give food and then recognized that a lot of people were trading the food, that they were using it to get soap and get, to, you know, other things that they actually needed. And so there's been more autonomy given to refugees in certain places where actually now they can choose to buy what they want. Um, or Somalis in Kampala who say, you know, we never buy rice. Like, we want pasta. We were colonized by the Italians. And, you know, so if when we don't go to the settlement and get rice, like, we have to trade it for the pasta. Um, so there are initiatives like that that I think are respecting refugees' choices and their ability, of course, to choose what's best for them. Um. Do you think that restrictions on refugee rights are holding back refugee-led organizations that you mentioned earlier? That's a yeah, another great question. Definitely. Um, refugee organizations in Kenya, for example, really have to work under the radar that um, if refugees are operating in Nairobi, they're not often not legally supposed to be there or some of their members aren't supposed to be there. And so that um, lack of basically have, being able to have a status somewhere plays a large role. Um, and then in terms of people's kind of broader ability to help themselves in different places and create their own livelihoods that, you know, most of the people working, I would say 99.999% of refugees and refugee-led organizations are not being paid because there's no money, that any money is going towards buying chalk, you know, for the Blackboard to teach the English classes and so on. Um, and so if they're not legally allowed to work, then how are they able to sustain themselves and offer support to other people? Um, do you think that um, aid organizations currently that are seeking to help refugees 
are facing particular organizational challenges as well? I would say that some of this um, focus on the relief development gap that we talked about earlier of really figuring out, you know, what's the role of different organizations and are they organizations that are just providing emergency relief and I'd say World Food Program kind of has it easy that they know they're they're trying to offer food to people um, but other organizations are trying to do a lot that they're trying to provide emergency services but they're also trying to train refugees or they're also trying to provide microfinance and so one of the challenges that I see is really organizations deciding where their expertise is and I don't think that def definitely means there needs to be just one area of expertise, but um, increasing collaboration is something that um, I've done archival research back to the 1920s, and it has been an issue that I think human relations um, play a large role in things becoming complicated quickly. Uh, so really deciding kind of who's doing what, where, and, and then why. You know, why is one organization best situated for this instead of others? And then kind of going beyond this, just humanitarian organizations um, really struggling with states. So they have to work with states to get funding. So they're often um, you know, getting earmarked funds that are maybe for particular programs that they don't think are as important as others. Um, and then dealing with host states. So really always having to negotiate access to countries to help refugees. So these are some of, I would say, the perennial issues of you know, sovereignty. Um, how frequent would you say collaboration is between uh, refugee aid organisations and other ones that are particularly um, experienced in specific areas, for example, like microfinance charities and refugee aid organisations? I would say that there's maybe not increasing, but there's definitely collaboration. So the Grameen Bank, which is yeah. sort of the maybe father of microfinance, um, signed a memorandum of understanding with the UN Refugee Agency back in 2010. So there, that's an example of UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, realizing that you know we are not bankers, like this is not our main area of focus, and really seeking out the experts. Um, there's been more and more work with the World Bank, which I think is interesting, but um, protection issues need to be taken into consideration, but that's an example of a development organization that's saying, you know, we do infrastructure, we do large-scale projects, um, we can help refugees with development or and so on, our host countries. So do you think part of the problem is that everyone thinks of um, aiding refugees as purely a refugee issue, where it's kind of linked to other um, issue, aid issues as well? Yeah, definitely that it goes beyond, right? So we think about who, who we're helping and why, right? So thinking about you know, the local people that refugees are beside who might really have problems with not receiving food when others do, or the states that have issues with letting people into their countries that they think are gonna criticize their government or so on, that, or you know, these organizations really having to get in the good favor of certain states in order to get the donations they need to assist refugees, that it's, I would say the, the issues go from the micro to the macro, and there's many of them beyond just refugees themselves. Um, okay, I'm just going to ask you one final question now. If you could introduce one change to aid um, refugees currently, what would it be? It would be for, um, for aid to go to the local and national level, definitely. So for these civil society organizations, refugee-led organizations to have much greater autonomy over the assistance that they're giving and that they're receiving. Okay, thank you so much for speaking to us today, Evan. It was really interesting to get your perspective on refugee aid. Uh, thank you everyone who's listened. I've been Nicholas Shin and this has been The Beacon. <laughs>